Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Hack with me, Kids Chapman, stepping in for Alex and Alina. I'm joined by Meryn Walters and today our special guest is Sam Keane. Sam is a science writer the author of The Disappearing Spoon, Caesar's Last Breath, and several other books, as well as The Bastard Brigade, which we'll be talking about today, and the podcast The Disappearing Spoon, focusing on science history. Sam, thank you for coming here. Well, hi, thanks for having me. Um, So let's set the scene a little bit, because we're going to be talking about The Bastard Brigade. Um, Who were The Bastard Brigade, in your opinion? (laughs) It was sort of a, a an informal group, or a loose group, I should say, of uh, scientists, military people, etc., who were convinced that Nazi Germany during World War II had the inside track on making the atomic bomb. Some of them were refugees, scientists from Nazi Germany. Some of them, again, were military people. Uh, And some of them were just people who knew how ruthless Hitler was and how terrifying it would be if he was able to harness the power of the atomic bomb. And so what they did is they um, kind of got together and they decided they were going to go after the scientists in Germany who were making the atomic bomb, working on atomic projects for Hitler, uh, to spy on them, to sabotage them. And in some cases, even try to assassinate members of the German atomic bomb project. And I called this group the Bastard Brigade in the book. Fantastic. Uh, December 1938, Otto Hahn and Lise Meitner, they discover nuclear fission, the fact that you can release this tremendous energy from the atom, you can break it apart. Um, What happens in Germany? Do they immediately start looking at, at nuclear projects? They get going on it fairly quickly in Germany. Uh, even before World War II was a month old, in September 1939, they had already gathered what they called their uranium club, and it included some very good scientists, like Otto Hahn, you mentioned, Werner Heisenberg was part of this, and they had some other people, some other top-notch people on there as well. Three Nobel Prize winners, in fact were on this committee. So Germany got going on this project very quickly. And in fact, really two years before the Manhattan Project got going in the United States. Things were moving a little faster in Great Britain, but the Manhattan Project that ultimately built the bomb really didn't get going until late 1941. And even after that, was dragging its feet for quite a while. So Germany had quite a head start on this project. So, quick question about the Uranium Club, just before we go into what the atomic bomb project was for from the Germans' perspective. How was the Uranium Club linked to the military, or was it or wasn't it? It had a loose affiliation. There were some military scientists, physicists who worked on military projects in it, so it definitely had connections there. And I believe they had military people kind of overseeing them as well. So they had definite links to the military, and they had the ear of people in the military, definitely. 
So, so there would have been a stream of information going perhaps both ways about what progress was and what the potential was for, for those developments? Definitely, yeah. Okay, all right. So, so let's talk about atomic energy and atomic bombs from the German perspective then. How much of a priority was it for them? At what point did they realise that there was really something in this new research, in this science, and they should pursue it? They, again, they started that pretty early. They realized in 1939 that they that it could be very powerful and it is something that they should be looking into. They ended up getting sidetracked by a few different things. One of them that I mentioned in the book was the fact that in the Manhattan Project, especially when they were trying to build the first uh, reactors, uh, so not the bomb itself, but a reactor to kind of help them understand uh, generally uh, the atomic process and get some numbers and parameters, things like that. They got that one of those scientists, frankly, made a pretty bad mistake, and he underestimated uh, how good uh, graphite was for this process. So in the Manhattan Project, they used graphite to make the first uh, full-fledged reactor. In Germany, they made a mistake, and they said that graphite was actually no good for that. So they got sidetracked on a project where they had to use heavy water, and that ultimately ended up being a detriment for them because they had no ability to produce heavy water in Germany. They had to go to a place in Norway, which was vulnerable, it was in another country. They exposed themselves to a bunch of sabotage, et cetera. Um, so that was kind of one thing they got sidetracked on. And the other thing was the scientists there in Germany were kind of arrogant, frankly, and they didn't feel the same sort of time pressure that the scientists on the Allied side did. Because the Allied scientists knew how good the Germans were, and they were really pushing. And that was part of the reason they worked so maniacally hard on the atomic bomb, was they felt that uh, kind of fear of Germany looming over them all the time. From the other side, from the German side, they figured, well, we're the best scientists in the world. If we can't get it, no one will. So they didn't really push as much as they might have had they actually, you know, frankly taken the American and the British scientists seriously. So they didn't push as hard as they would have. But something I talk about in the book that's really interesting is that the British and the American scientists didn't know that. They didn't know that the Germans weren't pushing as hard as they should. And up until, you know, the last few months of the war, they were really, really terrified that there was going to be some sort of last-minute surprise that the Germans were going to spring on them. And, in fact, Robert Oppenheimer, the head of the Manhattan Project, said at one point – it was kind of humble. He was not a humble man, but he said something uh, kind of acknowledging um, that – you know, it's a new science, and we don't pretend that we know everything. And it could be that someone on the German side will figure out a way to enrich uranium in their kitchen sink. And if that happens and they can ramp it up quickly, they can get a bomb a lot more quickly than we think. So that fear was really always looming over the Allied side, and it's part of what drove them to work on the Manhattan Project, but also what drove them, uh, more the subject of the book, to put together this brigade of scientists and other people to go into Europe to try to trip them up, spy on them, etc. I find that re really interesting because, and I, I know kids, kids excited to get in there, but, but I find that fascinating because from what I understand, scientists 
chemists, whoever, are, are like um, a community in their own regard, a, a transcontinental community. So the, con the idea that even then the Allies weren't aware of scientific development actually cast doubt as, into my mind as to the levels of communication that were going on. I kind of half expected scientists to be talking to each other. There was some informal conversations going on where there were German scientists in places like Switzerland, and they would be able to, a neutral country, so they would be able to talk to the scientists in Germany. And okay. then the Swiss scientists could talk to their um, refugee, their refugee friends over the United States and other places. Unfortunately, some of the information, as it went from one place to the other, got garbled because it was often through informal channels like letters and conversations as opposed to scientific journals. So there was this gossip, and I kind of joke in the book that, you know, scientists gossip as much as anyone. There were definitely gossip going around. But without the journal communication, that is what really uh, kind of harmed them, and that's what allowed rumors I shouldn't say it harmed them. It, it harmed the ability for good information to get out, and uh, rumors kind of took the place of this hard information. So it's by omission, without the peer-reviewed authoritative line of information coming out, it was, well, we don't know what they're not publishing, so we can only guess what they're, they're making progress on. Yeah, exactly. Right. And actually, there's, as kind of a side note, um, the Soviet Union was, of course, watching all this going on as well, and one of their scientists famously figured out that there must be some sort of atomic project going on, especially among the allied countries. Yes, he was kind of uh, wriggling his fingers together um, because he realized that they had suddenly stopped publishing on uranium vision, and he said, it's the, the, the dog that didn't bark in the nighttime, and he said, aha, that is a clue as to what's going on there. So, yeah, that, they were making those kind of uh, second-order deductions as well. Yeah, that was that was Georgie Flerow, yes, exactly. um, who obviously has an element named after him now and went on to become a, a very famous guy. Um, we probably should delve into a little bit of the science here before we continue because we've talked about enriching uranium. Uh, we mentioned heavy water. Um, so uranium, uh, which is most commonly uranium-238, you can't make a bomb out of that. You need to do something to it to create uranium-235. And the Germans wanted to use heavy water. Can you explain what heavy water is and, and how you enrich uranium, essentially? Yeah, there's, there's kind of two different processes. So with, as you said, there's uranium-238, which is the most abundant one. But that one doesn't fission um, in the way that you need it to, uh, to have a runaway chain reaction, essentially, which is what a bomb is. So what you have to do is you have to enrich it, which means you increase the concentration of the 235. And you can do that through various processes. Uh, actually, most of the budget for the Manhattan Project was spent on enriching uranium as opposed to actually putting the bomb together. So they spent a lot and a lot of time and money thinking about how to enrich uranium and increase the proportion of 235 to actually make something that would have a chain reaction. And then the heavy water came in because they needed to study various properties of chain reactions. And by using heavy water, they could do that. They could essentially set up a reactor and figure out things like, okay, every time one of these atoms splits, it's releasing some neutrons. 
how many neutrons is releasing, uh, how fast are they going, how can we harness that a little bit better. So the 235 was basically a way to study the reactions in detail and then figure out down the road how to put a bomb together from that. Uh, and what is heavy water uh, exactly? Heavy water is a slightly different form of water. So all water, heavy or otherwise, has one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms, so the famous H2O. Yeah. yeah. But in heavy water, it's a little different in that the hydrogen atoms, most hydrogen atoms, have just a single proton in them. So they have a mass unit of one in relative terms. Heavy water has hydrogen atoms that have a proton and a neutron in them, a neutron just being another neutral particle. So in relative terms, they have two particles. They have a mass unit of two, and so it's heavier. So heavy water is just a little bit heavier, has slightly different properties, uh, and especially the important thing is that if you use regular water in an atomic chain reaction, the neutrons that really drive the reaction, that drive the chain reaction, will get absorbed. They will essentially uh, die out. The chain reaction will die out if you use regular water. If you use heavy water, though, the neutrons do not get absorbed, and the chain reaction perpetuates itself. So heavy water is basically a way to allow the chain reaction to proceed as opposed to it fizzling out. Fantastic. So the Germans are looking at getting this heavy water from Norway. They're trying to enrich their uranium. How do the Allies find out exactly about what the Germans are doing? How does this bastard brigade start coming together? So what happened was basically, again, there were these rumors flying around about uh, these experiments that Heisenberg was working on. Um, one of them, for instance, uranium is actually quite a flammable substance. Into being, in addition to being radioactive, it actually burns fairly easily, especially in powder form. And they had an accident, for instance, at one of Heisenberg's reactors where they uh, some, something started burning, and this poor young technician ended up getting pretty badly burned through the rumor mill. This got around to Switzerland, got through some other people, went to the United States, where the Manhattan Project was, and the Allied scientists there thought, oh, my God, he actually built a reactor. So that kind of fueled their fears, got them going, kicked things into high gear. They were also hearing through France about progress on heavy water because there was only really one plant in the world at that time that was producing heavy water. It was kind of an obscure substance before Otto Hahn and Lisa Meitner figured out uh, uranium fission. And then uh, suddenly every scientist in the world wanted to get their hands on heavy water. So the Germans took over the part of Norway that had this heavy water production facility at it, and they walked in there one day, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were producing something like a few pounds of, your, of heavy water per year, and that was it. That was plenty to meet demand worldwide. The Germans came in and said suddenly, you know, we want several hundred kilograms every single year, and we want a standing order for another hundred kilograms. I mean, they just month after month, they wanted hundreds of pounds of this stuff. And the heads of the plant realized that something was going wrong. So they got in touch with some of their investors who were people in France, a company in France owned part of it, and one of them happened to have connections with Frédéric Joliot and Irene Joliot-Curie, uh, Marie Curie's daughter and uh, Marie Curie's uh, son-in-law, 
And Frederick actually ended up meeting with them, the directors of this heavy water production facility, and arranging to smuggle all this heavy water out of Norway. It was kind of a daring operation early in the war to keep this away from the Germans. I think I've got the figures on on that production. Um, I made a note of them earlier because I went, gosh, that's a big increase. In 1935, they were producing 100 grams at a time. 1938, total annual production was 80 kilos, so for a fair bit. By the end of 1941, 23 years later, they were producing 100 kilograms a month or more. So they they'd really ramped up production. Yeah. So we've mentioned uh, the Zolio Curies, who were also Nobel Prize winners, very much into sort of radioactivity and that kind of stuff. Another scientist who sort of comes into the picture about this time is Leif Tronstad, um, and we start getting the, the Operation Gonocide guys. Can you tell us a little bit of what happens there with the, with the Norwegians? Yeah, so the Norwegians, uh, after being invaded and taken over by Germany, they were obviously didn't like Germany, and they wanted to prevent them. Yeah, it goes without saying, but they obviously wanted to prevent them from producing this heavy water and shipping it into Germany to aid and abet their atomic bomb project. So they started doing things like there was an engineer at the plant who was sabotaging the production lines. He would do things like pour a little bit of castor oil into the production lines, which caused the heavy water production facilities to start foaming up. They would lose all this heavy water. They were also passing plans on, uh, plans of the plant on to expats who were in, I believe, London. They were definitely in England at the time. They were passing plans on to them about the plant so that they could plan a sabotage mission to go in there and basically destroy the heavy water facilities in Norway. So they were looking to uh, sabotage it both kind of on a small scale with the scientists who were in, engineers who were in the plant, but also bring in the allies and have them kind of try to destroy the whole plant at once. And, uh, and how successful were the allies in doing that? Did they actually get over there and destroy the plant? So they did end up getting a group of commandos, and it's one of the more amazing and brave stories of the war. They parachuted into Norway, uh, had to get all their supplies there, spent a couple of days. Um, there were various parts of the mission, but they met up with some other people who were already there, uh, spent some time acclimating themselves, and then essentially snuck in past all of the German guards. You know, they had the dogs, they had the, the guns on the roof, they had the whole, the whole business cut some fences open, snuck into the plant, planted some bombs there, and got out of there alive. They actually had written letters to their family, this commando group, before they left because they were convinced that this was a one-way mission. They were going to get caught and they were going to die on this mission trying to destroy the heavy water. But they ended up getting in there, setting the explosives, destroying all of the heavy water that was on hand, and sneaking out again. So it was really, really a brave and incredible mission that they went on, and all of them got out of there alive again and got back uh, to safety in the Allied countries. Yeah, this is the the, um, Grouse, Freshman, and Gunnerside trilogy, or Swallow, if you want to make it a quartet, where... Yep. Grouse and Freshman involved sending over scouts, sending over the initial landing party that was supposed to go and commit the sabotage. And then we've got Freshman, where it was 39 um, British air troops went across in horse gliders, did not survive, um, following on from the, the, the orders that had been recently, you know, hit, hit this 
recently issued commando order. Uh, they were executed in various places. And then the original landing team had to hole up during the winter. It was awful. They were living off moss and reindeer, basically, reformed yeah. as um, Swallow. And then in February, they the, the second mission, repeating the, the um, original target, was to drop down into Riken, across the ravine, up the other side, and do what damage they could. Um, for, for the Germans, what was the impact of the sabotage because the sabotage well, I mean we know that the, the sabotage blew out the side of the cellar in which the, the heavy water tanks were and um, it caused chaos um, when we know that, that Transat didn't want the entire um, hydro plant to be bombed he, he actually stood up and said no please don't do that because I know people here and it would be a really bad thing if you bombed the entire operation but what was the impact locally and for Norway, and for the Germans of that initial sabotage, what happened? Uh, it was kind of unfortunate in that the Germans uh, decided that, okay, well, we're going to use this time while the plant was down to actually improve the production facilities. So they ended up going in there, and the Allies were convinced that they had kind of wiped this plant out and we would never hear of it again. But the Germans were committed enough where they brought in a bunch of workers and they actually improved production there. And within a, a couple months even, they had the, the plant working again at higher production levels than before. And that's when, um, on the American side especially, Leslie Groves, who was the overall head of the Manhattan Project, he came in and he said, okay, we're not messing around anymore. We are going, if the Germans are this committed, to producing heavy water, we are going to go in there with our bombers and we're going to destroy the place. And he infuriated a lot of people, especially on the Norwegian side, who were making exactly the arguments that you were, that there's a lot of civilians around here. This plant produces a lot of fertilizer. It wasn't just a heavy water production facility. They were using hydroelectric power to make fertilizer and other things as well. The, high, the heavy water was a bit of a side project for them. Is that a nitrate? That, What's that? Is it called ammonia nitrate? Yeah, that's a precursor to fertilizer that they were making. Yeah, exactly. And But after Leslie Groves heard that they had gotten the plant back up and running again, he said, no more messing around. We're going in there with bombers. And they, it, it was kind of a dumb decision, frankly, because the heavy water production was in the basement of a plant. Uh, it was already kind of on this cliffside, so it was a hard target for a plane to hit. And they ended up doing minimal damage to the plant and a fair amount of damage to the town nearby. They actually hit a bomb shelter that civilians were in with a bomb. Uh, school children died. Elderly people died. It was a bit of a debacle and did even less damage than the first one did. The, the, sorry, the, than the commando raid did. Uh, and the only overall effect of these really – um, I mean, despite all the people who died bravely and everything, the only effect of them was to convince Germany that, okay, if they're targeting these heavy water production facilities, you know, they must be serious about this. We need to get them out of Norway and put them into Germany. Uh, so they moved the heavy water production from Norway, and they tried to get it restarted in Germany, which was a big delay for them. 
and one of the reasons why the project really struggled to get going after a while. So in an inadvertent way, it did end up delaying and harming the project, but not because they necessarily wiped out the production facilities themselves in Norway. So kind of a topsy-turvy outcome there. One thing you mentioned in your book is uh, assassination attempts against uh, German officers directly rather than sort of this, this bombing, actually targeting people. Can you tell us a little bit about those missions? Yeah, so Leslie Groves, again, was uh, the head of the Manhattan Project, and he decided he was going to bomb the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in outside of Berlin, uh, he was going to go right after Otto Hahn, for one, and Heisenberg as well. And Otto Hahn almost certainly would have died in this bombing raid that Groves ordered. A bomb basically came through his office, <laughs> fell through his office, and would have practically landed in his desk, in his chair there, had he not been out of town at the time. So he almost certainly would have died in this raid, and Heisenberg's lab was very nearby as well. So Groves was very interested in going after these scientists and bombing them. So that was kind of a, a high-level bombing mission. But there was also another, uh, even sort of sneakier mission, where toward the end of the war, the Allies got word that Werner Heisenberg was going to be giving a lecture in Switzerland, which again was a neutral country, which meant that allied people could travel there. And Groves decided that they were going to send an undercover agent into Switzerland uh, with a gun in one pocket and a cyanide pill in the other pocket. And this agent, uh, he was actually a former Major League Baseball player named Mo Berg, a uh, guy who spoke several languages, could kind of get by undercover because he spoke German so well. They sent him into Switzerland, um, posing as a Swiss graduate student, and he went to the lecture with Heisenberg. And he had orders that if Heisenberg gave any sort of hint that they were on the verge of succeeding with making an atomic bomb, Berg's uh, mission was to stand up and to shoot Heisenberg dead try to get away, but if he couldn't get away, he was supposed to take the cyanide pill and kill himself. So even as late as this was, I think, December 1944, the Allies were terrified of the German bomb project to the point where they were sending assassins in to kill a Nobel Prize winner. And as I mentioned in the book, this would have been just a gigantic international incident. I mean, you just can't go in and assassinate Nobel Prize winners, especially in neutral countries. There are, there's Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Mo Bird that used to play for the Boston Red Sox. 
Yep, Moberg. He played on several teams in Boston uh, Red Sox, most famously. Yep. Outstanding. Um, <laughs> yeah, he. I, I mean, he lived an amazing life. He was friends with Babe Ruth. Uh, he used to travel around Japan, uh, giving baseball lectures there. Uh, he was friends with Albert Einstein, for instance. He used to drop on Albert Einstein uh, in Princeton. My favorite uh, story about Moberg was one day uh, they had a double header, uh, so they were playing two games at once in, I think it was Detroit, and he sat in the bullpen, so he was a catcher, he sat in the bullpen with the other pitchers, or with the pitchers, and he polished off a book on non-Euclidean relativistic space-time in the bullpen during this double header, and his teammates were making the same face you're making right now, which is, you know, what, what the heck is it? I don't even know what that is. What does that mean? Why are you doing this, Mo? You're a baseball player. You shouldn't be reading these weird books. And he explained that he was going to go visit Albert Einstein pretty soon, and he wanted to talk with him about non-Euclidean relativistic space-time. But that was just what Mo Berg's life was like. He was talking with diplomats on one day, Albert Einstein on the other, and then, you know, becoming an assassin after the war. So he really led this this amazing, amazing life. Okay, so, so talk to us a little bit. I know that in your book you, you delve into the Alsos mission. Tell us what that's about. The Alsos mission was kind of the, um, the, the Moberg assassin story was a bit of the underground, the dirty work that was going on uh, during the war. Alsos was a bit more above ground in that they were fairly secretive about their mission, but they were part of a, a part of the regular army. They weren't sort of this uh, rogue group going around. Uh, it was a group of probably about half scientists and half military people, and their job was to go into first France and then into Germany as the Allies started marching forward and to gather all the intelligence they could on Germany's atomic scientists and then to start to round them up at the end of the war. So they were the ones going – oh, and also the third thing they were charged with doing was seizing stores of uranium and heavy water, so kind of the material production side. So they were the ones actually going in, uh, often on the front lines of the armies marching into cities like Paris, sweeping in, grabbing scientists, uh, grabbing material, things like that. Actually, the first Allied troops to enter Paris uh, from the outside in 1944 were members of this Alsace mission because they were hell-bent on getting to Frédéric Joliot Curie, who was still in Paris at the time. So they were often right with the leading edge of the army, you know, dodging bullets, uh, weaving around bombed-out trucks and things like that, right on the edge trying to get these atomic scientists because that's how high a priority this was considered. So uh, a lot of people are probably familiar with the movie The Monuments Men about trying to save paintings and things like that. This was basically the scientific version of The Monuments Men. Yeah, exactly. It's a very good comparison. It was this kind of independent group running around with a special mission, uh, as opposed to the Monuments Man, again, was art, but this was atomic science, atomic secret. So that's a very good comparison. It was the Monuments Man of science. And just jumping in very quickly before Kit's next question, ALSOS, what did that stand for? Was it just one of the, the issued code names? Uh, it was kind of a, uh, a bit of an in-joke. It was the Greek word for grove. 
Yeah. Uh, and Leslie Groves was the head of the Manhattan Project. So some overeducated minion of his decided to make a, a pun in uh, multiple languages and call the mission the Grove mission in Greek. Uh, and when Groves himself actually found out about this, he was furious because people within the military knew about this atomic bomb project. And he was worried that if people knew he was sending some troops into Europe, and it was called the All-Sauce Mission, they would put together what this group was doing there. So he was actually furious that they had made this little joke about his name. He was not a very uh, fun-loving guy, I would say. He was furious about this. But he decided eventually that changing the name would draw more attention to it. So they decided to keep the name ultimately. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I had always wondered. Yeah. So they start, they start sweeping into, into France, into Germany, um, and they start uncovering the German bomb projects. Um, how close were the Germans? Uh, were they actually as close that they should have been shooting Heisenberg, or were they a long way off? No, uh, Moberg did not end up shooting Heisenberg, which was probably for the best. Um, they, they weren't that close, uh, and it's always been a real debate among historians about why they weren't that close. Uh, some have claimed that Heisenberg himself was sabotaging the mission from the inside. I don't find that very persuasive, but some people have argued that. Um, I think the German arrogance that I mentioned before played a role in it in that they weren't working very hard. They weren't really pushing themselves the way the Allied scientists were in the Manhattan Project. Uh, Germany was under pretty severe economic strain at the time because they were basically closed off from their trading partners from before the war, couldn't get raw materials in there, things like that. Uh, and another big thing was that they decided for various reasons to prioritize their rocket mission uh, and ended up having devastating effects, the, the bombing London, things like that. Um, but that was a, another a uh, fairly scientific project that took up a lot of energy and a lot of resources. So they ended up uh, putting most of their time and effort and money into that as opposed to the atomic project. But again, the Allies didn't know any of this, and they were still very worried that Germany, again, could have this sort of kitchen sink operation and possibly come up with something. Or another big fear of theirs was that Germany would just start producing radioactive materials in um, reactors and then start spreading that radioactive material on the beaches of France, for instance. So when the Allies on D-Day actually went in and started uh, the land invasion in Normandy, there were groups running around with Geiger counters there, and they had special orders to look out for radioactive material because they feared that Germany with just a little bit of radioactive material could basically keep the Allies off the continent and prevent the invasion from happening. This is, this is fascinating, the idea that the Allies are, are really pursuing this idea of we don't know what they're doing, so they must be doing something. And that there's no counterintelligence coming out of Germany to, to dispel that theory. Actually, it's kind of interesting. Um, so I focus a little bit more on the American side because they were the ones who were kind of in a tizzy about this whole thing. The British actually had a much uh, – they, they, they were the British were, in, I think, a little embarrassed even on the Americans' behalf about how much of a tizzy they were in about this. 
because from what the British were hearing, that the Germans were not very far along, and they thought the Americans were being a little ridiculous about the whole thing. But from the Americans' point of view, they said, you know, it, it, even if it's a small chance, the outcome is so bad that we feel like we need to pursue this. And plus, they were hearing all these rumors and things like that. So the British, I think, definitely were a bit more hesitant and were kind of poo-pooing the whole thing, whereas the Americans were just kind of barreling forward recklessly and, and going right ahead. So Wow. So, so it's almost an archetypal catch-22 where even if they heard intelligence or found intelligence to the effect of, um, I mean, uh, we stopped doing all that, they would never have trusted it then that you couldn't have taken that risk, the, the, the risk of them actually secretly putting out counterintelligence, it would have been a flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop. No, we, no matter what we find, we've still got to go and look for more. Just Exactly. Yeah, when you're convinced of something, you, you invent exactly. ways, you invent justifications. In fact, there was a moment where uh, Samuel Goudsmit, who was a fairly famous atomic scientist, he was the mm -hmm. top scientific chief on the Allsauce mission, and at one point... They got into the office of one of the top German scientists, uh, von Weizsäcker, and they actually found this letter that was torn up and placed in his trash can in his office after he abandoned it. And based on the date of the letter and the science that they were discussing in the letter, Samuel Goudsmit concluded that actually Germany was not very far along in this project, and they were actually way behind what the Manhattan Project was working on. And Goudsmit was very excited about this, and he said, oh, you know, we don't have to worry about this threat anymore, and he brought this to Leslie Groves. And Groves said, wait a second here. There was nothing else in this guy's office. He had gotten rid of most everything else in the office except there was one letter in his trash can claiming that they are not, not claiming, but that implies that they weren't that far along. This is an obvious plant and it, this is a fake and it wasn't a fake. It turned out to be uh, very good, very smart intelligence. But again, when you're convinced of something, you will invent reasons for it. So that was a good example. So we know that the Allies, um, the, the British and the Americans working together now on the Manhattan Project, they're not talking to the Russians, as we mentioned earlier. Are the Germans talking to the Japanese because they've also got their own bomb project and are they trying to help them at all? There were always some vague rumors that the Germans you know, had sent a sub or something all the way to Japan to try to help them out uh, with some you know, uh, atomic information in it, something like that. But Germany, from what I could tell, was fairly isolated and definitely not uh, on the level that the Americans and the British were working together, where you had really tight integration amongst the Allies. And the, the atomic bomb project in Japan especially was very small scale, not very well funded, not much was going on there. So essentially Germany was not helping out Japan at all. Fair enough. Um, now with the Allsauce mission, they're, they're gathering up all of the intelligence and they start rounding up German scientists as well. Can you tell us a little bit about who gets who in terms of, because the, the Russians are coming in trying to grab scientists as well. Yeah, so the Alsace mission, it was kind of interesting. The Alsace mission had sort of its most wanted list that they were going after. And they ended up grabbing all the top scientists. So you had people like uh, Otto Hahn, you had von Weizsäcker, you had Heisenberg, who was the last one to be captured, you had Max von Lau. So they really got their hit list of all the top people. And they famously brought them to Farm Hill, 
the estate in England and kind of uh, kept them there for the remainder of the war. Whereas the Russians swept in uh, from the other side, coming in from the east, and the Russians really targeted kind of the lower level technician type scientists. And they ended up essentially kidnapping a bunch of them, bringing them back to the Soviet Union, and putting them to work on their crash atomic bomb project. So I think the Soviets probably would have gone after the top German scientists had they been able to get their hands on them. But they, as a consolation prize, they got a lot of the younger, maybe even the harder working people, brought them into the Soviet Union and put them to work. So the Soviets were very eager to get their hands on atomic scientists as well, atomic information. So, so was this a, to some extent the idea, well, the top tier is gone, but actually the guys who are hand, hands-on building stuff, if we get the right team together, they can replicate what the top, top team would have done theoretically? Yeah, exactly. That's what they were trying to do. Uh, and it actually in some ways ended up working out better for them because the Soviets, based on the fact that they were spying on uh, the Manhattan Project, especially at Los Alamos, they knew a lot of these sort of top-level stuff. And I think that's a bit of a misconception a lot of people have about the atomic bomb was that there was no sort of, as Samuel Goudsmith sort of mocked this, as, you know, there's a secret formula on a blackboard somewhere. And if someone just breaks into the room and sees the secret formula, then they'll know how to make a bomb. All of the sort of scientific information about how to uh, make a bomb had been published before the war. So there was no secret about the scientific side. It was the technical side. It was the engineering side that was the real uh, challenge there. And so for the Soviets getting their hands less on the top scientists and more on the technicians and lower-level people, that actually ended up giving them a fairly big boost and a uh, good jumpstart on their program. I think the the only thing the Allies really had secret was plutonium, which, which no one else had. But um, uh, in terms of the, the German project, um, the uranium stuff that they actually did, was that useful after the war? Was that something that the Allies incorporated into their own projects going forward, or was this sort of a dead end and then abandoned? It wasn't so much a dead end and abandoned. It was just that the Germans didn't know as much as the Allies did. Uh, there was kind of a funny moment toward the end of the war I was actually very poignant. So Goudsmit, the scientist that I mentioned, Samuel Goudsmit, to me was kind of the emotional core of the book in that I take a lot of scenes from his point of view, things like that. And all the while, while he was hunting down the Germans, he was actually trying to find his parents who were in a concentration camp in Germany and trying to save them this whole time. So he had kind of this double mission going on. And he actually knew Werner Heisenberg from Europe from before the war. So they'd actually been good friends. And Heisenberg had met his parents. He'd stayed at the Goudsmith's house. He knew his parents. And Goudsmith at one point had actually appealed to Heisenberg uh, kind of across enemy lines and said, hey, my parents are in a concentration camp. Can you try to help them out? And Heisenberg really didn't end up doing anything about it. And it was kind of a heartbreaking moment for Goudsmith uh, that his friend, he felt his friend had not only uh, gone over to the enemy side, but had abandoned his parents that he knew. So Goudsmith was very torn up emotionally about this whole thing. And there was a moment uh, toward the end of the war 
where Goudsman was sitting down and he had to kind of interrogate Werner Heisenberg. And he was just broken up about this, but he had his duty to do to go talk to Heisenberg. And, but Heisenberg was as arrogant as ever, very cocky about this whole thing. And he sort of looked at Goudsmith, and again, this was before uh, the Japanese, before the Hiroshima bomb went off. So Heisenberg didn't know that the Manhattan Project existed. But he kind of looked at Goudsmith and he said, don't worry, we'll catch you Americans up on all this atomic stuff pretty soon. And Goudsmith was just bewildered that, you know, the arrogance of him to think that, you know, the Germans were going to catch the Americans up and the British up when, in fact, the Allies were far ahead of whatever the Germans had done. So really it was a matter of the Allies looked at what German the Germans had done and decided, well, we're beyond this. We don't really need what they have done. So, they, yeah, they kind of abandoned it. The one thing that always strikes me is uh, when they were at Farm Hall, they were actually being recorded. And so we know their reactions to the Hiroshima bomb. Um, so how did they react? Because I think Otto Hahn was almost suicidal when he heard the bomb had been used. Yeah, uh, Otto Hahn was really broken up about uh, atomic fission in general because he didn't want to use to make bombs. And uh, <laughs> you might ask why he was working on the German project then. Um, but... When they were at Farm Hall, again, as you said, they were being recorded, so they know their reactions. And when Han realized that they had succeeded in making a bomb and that a lot of people in Japan had died from this, as you said, he was really broken up about this. And when they went to bed that night, two of the other Germans at Farm Hall actually sat outside his room and they were peeking in the door to make sure that he didn't try to kill himself because they were convinced that he was that distraught about the whole thing what the, the, their input, their scientific input, would have been formative in the plans that ended up killing hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, exactly. Hans was basically thinking something I discovered, my discovery, led directly in only six years to these horrific bombs that not only killed a lot of people, but that could threaten the future of humankind because they were so big and so powerful. So I'm curious as to, you mentioned that a lot of this science was widely available before the outbreak of the war. Um, the, the, the way to actually create a nuclear bomb, that was, that was well known. Was there any research that you couldn't get access to while you were putting this book together? I'm always curious about that. There wasn't, I guess I should clarify one thing. Uh, when I said that the science was available, the science of how to um, make a chain reaction, how to do that as opposed to the physical act of putting a bomb together. So, again, that was what I was yeah. talking about as a sort of Just wanted to make sure we clear on that. Yeah. Um, there wasn't a ton at this point. Uh, some of the details about how to put a bomb together are still confidential. Uh, good, good. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's kind of a good thing, I'm thinking. I guess so, but it's a little silly. No one is making bombs at low level nowadays. No one's, I mean, uranium bombs are a little um, uh, passe now. Everyone's using plutonium. I guess I guess it's a good thing, uh, but it, it seems a little ridiculous to me, but okay. Um, but yeah, there, there are some parts about the actual making of the bomb that are still uh, top secret. Um, and one of the reasons I think it's so ridiculous is that the amount of work it would take to, again, enrich the uranium, it, I mean, it's a vast, vast amount of work. It's not a matter of just getting your hands 
on, you know, a couple pounds of natural uranium ore, and then you have a bomb. It takes ridiculous amounts of work to enrich uranium. So it's not something you can just make in your kitchen sink like Oppenheimer was claiming. That turned out not to be the case. Um, but anyway, as to your question about stuff that I couldn't get my hands on, about the missions, not so much. They're, most of the information is out there at this point. It's classified for a long time, but about the missions, most of that information is out there. Oh. Fantastic. Sam, thank you so much for coming on History Hack. Um, it's been a real treat. Uh, what's next for you? I am still working on my podcast, uh, and I actually have a book that's coming out this summer called The Ice Pick Surgeon. Uh, basically, it's a collection of tales about scientists who got so obsessed with some topic that they went way too far in pursuing it, uh, trampling ethical boundaries, often committing crimes even in the name of science. So it's kind of marrying the, the illicit thrill of a true crime tale with all the uh, stories of scientific discovery. So I'm very excited about that book. We'll really look out for it. That sounds great, Sam. Thank you so much. All right, thanks for having me. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look, do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well, and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.